Welcome, everyone, to episode eight of the Speak Up by Avalon Bay podcast. In this episode, we are joined by five Avalon Bay associates who are representing our associate resource groups. These groups include the Women's Leadership Network, the WLN, the Black Associate Coalition, the BAC, the Latinx Employees of Avalon Bay for Diversity, LEAD, Parents and Caregivers of Avalon Bay, PAC, and the Associate Rainbow Coalition, ARC. Our topic for today's episode is microaggressions in the workplace. Hello, my name is Tron Jackson, and I will be your moderator of today's microaggression discussion. We have guests here today from Avalon Bay, and I will allow them to introduce themselves. So Gari, please. Thank you, Sean. My name is Gari Padenker. I am the Director of Revenue Management in the Arlington office, and I represent the Parents and Caregiver Associate Resource Group. My favorite hometown meal is really anything my uh, mom made growing up. My mom cooked a lot of Indian food growing up in Toronto and really sort of the gamut of everything she made is is my favorite meal. Thank you. Sarah? Hey guys, I am Sarah Tulo. I'm the sales manager at Avalon Cove in Jersey City, New Jersey. My ARG is the Associate Rainbow Coalition. My favorite hometown meal is probably garlic shrimp from this tiny Portuguese barbecue place right by my house. There's maybe two chairs in there, two tables in there, but it is delicious and I always crave it. That sounds delicious. And Lauren? Hey everyone, my name is Lauren King. I'm a senior internal auditor at the Arlington office. I am also a member of the Black Associates Coalition, the BAC. And my favorite hometown meal, so I'm from Jersey and New York, and so I just love a good old beef patty and cocoa bread from the local Jamaican spot. It was the island shop near where I grew up in Jersey, so I'm hungry now. <laughs> love Jamaican food. Thank you, Lauren. And Erica. Hi, everyone. I'm Erica Saldivar. I am Director of Engineering at Special Projects. I am in New York, and I represent LEAD, and I am also the National Communication Strategist for LEAD. My favorite meal has to be tamales because I am a, a true Texas Mexican girl, and a good tamale is always, I'm always on the hunt for one. So if you know, let me know. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. I too am hungry now. My name is Chawn Jackson. I am the Senior Director of Talent Acquisition at Avalon Bay. I am out of the Arlington headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. I am the Professional Development Chair of the Black Associate Coalition, and I am originally from South Side of Chicago. So my favorite hometown meal is probably something you will guess, deep dish pizza. I love a good deep dish pizza. My favorite place is Gino's East, but just about any deep dish place in Chicago will do for me. So thank you all for those introductions and sharing your favorite hometown meal. We're going to jump into the conversation about microaggressions in the workplace and talk a little bit about what a microaggression is first. 
So according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, (laughs) a microaggression is a comment or an action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude towards a member of a marginalized group, such as a racial minority. So that's the technical definition of a microaggression. However, the term microaggression was sort of coined in 1970 by Dr. Chester Milbrook Pierce, who was a Harvard professor, and he coined the the term to talk about dismissive behavior he had seen directed towards specifically Black people. And now the term has been expanded to include any marginalized group, which could be women, people of color, people with disabilities, really any marginalized group. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the difference between a microaggression and bias. And they're very similar. However, you know, bias is defined as really uh, prejudice is what it comes down to. It is to give a settled and often prejudiced outlook. So the microaggression is really the action behind the bias. Bias is more in the mind and microaggression is a more active action. So when we talk about microaggressions, There are things like, you're pretty for a dark-skinned girl, things like that. Or, I forgot to do X, I'm so dyslexic. Those type of things are microaggressions. So I want to open up the conversation to the panel, and I have some questions I'd like to get your input on. Talk to me a little bit about if you've observed microaggressions occur around you, and what did that look like? So thinking about this, I realized that I was guilty of specific microaggressions within my community, the LGBTQ plus community. And I feel like a lot of that stemmed from lack of representation, not only in the media, but also in what I was seeing around me. So growing up, you know, when I was younger, college, and really even early 20s, Anytime I would meet someone new, a go-to question would be, do you have a boyfriend? If I was talking to a girl that I had just met, or do you have a girlfriend if it was the opposite sex? And I had realized that I was pigeonholing this person into not only a specific gender norm, but also assuming that they were heterosexual just because so much of what we're surrounded by is this is what's typical. This is what's normal. If you are a woman, you're going to be dating a man. And if you're a man, you're going to be dating a woman. And I had to stop myself from asking those types of questions and steer towards, are you dating anybody? Or are you in a relationship? And it was something that I I honestly never really thought of until I noticed that I was doing it. And even now, my niece is nine. And my in-laws and other family members will say things to her like, when you bring a boy home, we have to approve. And it like irks me so bad because she's nine, you know, and we're putting all of this pressure on her to choose this lifestyle when it's not a choice and she's going to be who she is and it's going to be wonderful and beautiful. And so I try extra hard, especially with her and my other nieces and nephews, to be inclusive. Whoever you bring home, we're excited to meet them and your friends or your partners or whatever the case may be and to 
really lead by example and show her that successful relationships come in all different shapes and sizes and genders and all of these different things. And whoever you are is perfect and beautiful. But that was something that I I really needed to think about and didn't notice I was doing it until it happened so often. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. These societal norms, right, that are sort of placed on people to, to your point, do what's normal. And how do you define that? Anyone else want to chime in on that? Actually, yeah. So just being a Black woman and seeing certain things. So some of the microaggressions that I've seen have been kind of around the idea that all Black people are lazy or criminals or fatherless or unmarried and pregnant and things like that. So I've seen a lot of, you know, if I go into a store, it's kind of assumed that I can't afford certain things. So I may not be taken to the most quality things. I've seen people kind of followed around stores. I've also seen like kind of the assumption that, okay, well, you're a single Black woman. You have children, you know, I don't have wear a ring. So you can assume that I'm unmarried, although that is another assumption that is made. So I've seen stuff like that. And it kind of weighs on you because you're like, well, everybody thinks I'm a criminal. Everybody thinks that I'm this. Am I that? And the, and you internalize it a little bit. And that's kind of the experience that I've seen. Not always me personally experiencing that, but just seeing it happen to so many people. Even my brother changed his hair to have locks and my sister and I were kind of scared. Like, oh, you might be seen as a criminal because your hair is not clean shaven or you don't look traditional or people tell us that that's not professional. So those are the types of microaggressions that I've seen. And it, it goes far beyond that also with just stereotypes around professionalism and what people look like and how they are. And so those are kind of basic things that I've just experienced or seen. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. I I agree. I think um, I've experienced two going into a store and, you know, the salesperson sort of on your heels all the time, or can I help you? Can I help you? It's like, no, if I need some help, I'll ask. Thank you. So I get it. Yeah. Again, and again, those societal norms, you should fit in. Just to add on to what Lauren was mentioning, I have felt that as well. And it's interesting, both my parents, they have fairly heavy accents and, you know, they're very smart people, but when they speak to somebody who does not have an accent, that person's reaction is always, are you going to understand what I'm saying? Are you going to comprehend my point? And I just feel that sometimes having growing up with my parents who did have fairly heavy accents, they were seen as maybe not being as smart or not maybe understanding how things were. They understood everything perfectly. It was just that perception of somebody not having the same accent as the other person. And I also sometimes, you know, my son who is a special needs child, he's in speech therapy and he cannot always communicate very easily and very quickly. And so when he's speaking, there's always a reaction from somebody else because they don't understand what he's saying. And I sometimes feel it's similar to how the reactions occurred with my parents who had who have very thick Indian accents in that people don't understand. They are not sure if you're smart. They're not sure if you're following them. And he's also a very smart child. 
And I find that sometimes people are surprised at his comprehension. So I think there's somewhat of a microaggression when people think communication and comprehension are the same thing, and they're not. Somebody may not be able to communicate in the same way as you or as others or as the norm. They may not be able to speak in the same way that normal is defined, but by no means does that ever mean they don't comprehend or they're not smart or they can't learn or they can't pick things up. So I've sort of noticed that on two spectrums. One side is with my parents who have fairly thick accents. And then the other side with my son, who does not have very strong jaw muscles or talking muscles, motor muscles. So he can't always communicate in a coherent way. And you definitely see the reaction of a of microaggression there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Gari. Yeah, I, I actually echo what everybody's saying. And and for me, microaggressions, and I go back to when I was little, and they start at a very early age, which you just don't realize, right? Like what Sarah was saying, it's like, oh, you have to play with dolls, and you have to wear dresses. And it's like, well, I want to play with the cars. And like, I want to be a superhero. And yeah. I want to wear pants. I don't want to wear skirts. It's like, what what's going on? But then you adapt to what's put in front of you. And then as you grow up, you start to identify these things and start to take action around them. Before, when I was younger in my career, I would always get these little comments here and there. And you just adapt and you're like, oh, it's part of life and you you move on. But they affect you. They add up. And um, you start making decisions based on those microaggressions in your life. Oh, I'm not going to go to that environment because I don't want to go through that pain. Or I'm going to go through this because I'm not smart because you think that people give you comments over the years and you're like, maybe I can't do that. No, yes, you can do that. But as you start moving along in your professional career, you realize that you can do it and you want to take action and you want to help. I've seen many macroaggressions over time. Uh, One time we were shopping for a home and the sales lady came up and said, well, you do know that these homes are X, Y, and Z range, right? I was like, yeah, okay. So you still want to tour the home? And it's like, yeah, 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 we want to. You start catching up and you start getting upset. It's like, why did she say that? Or um, sometimes in a male-dominated environment, they might come and ask you questions like, where's the bathroom? Or can you help me set up? Or where can I find a chair? And if there's 30 men, they'll go to you to ask you that question. Or one time I was at a, a supermarket where I was speaking Spanish and they told me to go back home. It's like, well, this is my home. Like, what do you mean? But as, as I grew older, I started realizing that we have to speak up around these things in order to make a change and make a difference. Because if everybody's letting it go, because, oh, it's normal. No, it's not right. We have to speak up and and give the younger generations a chance to take different paths because it, it's a more open world now. So, yeah, many, yeah. many things over time. Thanks for sharing that, Erica. And I think that's a really good point. You know, it's not normal, right? And people have to understand that when they say things that are microaggressions, it has an impact. And when you hear that, you know, I heard some of you say from childhood, right? You hear those things from childhood, Sarah's niece and Lauren's brother, it has an impact and it it sort of sits in your soul and it goes with you throughout your lifetime. Erica, you shared that one, that microaggression. Anyone else, have you experienced a personal microaggression? And if so, how did that make you feel? I experienced something more recently, which 
caught me off guard. My wife and I are in the process of trying to start a family. And we have learned a lot about what that entails, especially being gay and knowing that you are limited by biology in so many different ways. I'm very open about the process because I'm realizing that so many people have no idea that you can be gay and have a baby, that you just need sperm. You don't need to married to a man or a date a man and things like that. And I was talking to somebody about it more recently and the process about going to the doctors and sometimes every day leading up to it and just figuring out exactly the best way to do this and the safest way to do this. And the comment that I got back was, oh, right, well, you can't do it the normal way. And I was like, like the normal way, like there is not one way to have a family and to create a family. And at the time I I didn't say anything, I think because I was so shocked that that would be somebody's immediate reaction. They quickly shifted gears when they noticed that I was taken aback by it. But I think again, because there are all these norms, I put that in quotes, that are put upon us. You know, you have to look a certain way and you have to act a certain way and you have to be with this specific person in order to be accepted or acknowledged or not looked at with a raised eyebrow. And for myself, I am a white woman. I am feminine. I I guess, present heterosexual as to what you would assume a heterosexual person looks like based off of representation alone. And people are inclined to make comments, you know, you're married, what does your husband do? Or that's good that you're working, like you and your husband have a great relationship or just little things like that. And I feel like I'm coming out 40 times a day in advance to somebody making these assumptions or throwing these microaggressions because it gets so taxing to have to constantly tell people, no, that's not the only way. It's not the only option. And it's certainly not my option. And I just hearing everybody else, you, you get into these situations where you're trying to always get ahead of it because you're just sick and tired of having to hear it all the time or to deal with it. So yes, absolutely stand up when you notice it, when it's happening to you, when it's happening to somebody next to you. But also it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to put on a marginalized group to constantly be the ones to say, this is not okay, or this is offensive and maybe you didn't realize it. You know, it could be a lot. Yeah. So always in a position of having to educate someone else, right? instead of them educating themselves and and having a, a more open mind around things. I agree. There's more than one way to have a family. Absolutely. And some people adopt. Some people do that. They can't have children. And I was in that situation. I was adopted. My my parents couldn't have children. And so you're right. It's, it's more than one way. Hi, everyone. This is David Alagno, Senior Vice President of Human Resources. Avalon Bay is proud to be an equal opportunity employer and is committed to an inclusive and diverse work environment free of discrimination and harassment. We believe that in order to achieve our purpose of creating a better way to live, we must recruit, 
develop and retain associates with a wide range of backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives, and create an environment that encourages all voices to be heard, understood, and appreciated. If you're interested in learning more about a career with Avalon Bay, please visit our website at www.jobs.avalonbay.com. Has anyone else experienced a microaggression personally? I have, and I just kind of want to share too. So the first one was very, it was personal about me. So if you know Lauren, then you know I love everything about natural hair. And I talk about hair all the time, even at work. And so (laughs) it's a big deal in the Black community when you go natural, at least it was at some point, because there was such this norm about wanting to assimilate and be closer to whiteness. So having straight hair was more acceptable and more quote unquote professional. And even when I cut my hair and went natural and, you know, my curls are just how they grow out of my head now, which is normal for a lot of people, but (laughs) it's not always normal for when you have kinkier hair textures, it's a, you know, it's a thing. So I was really scared to come into the office and I finally did and I had no issues and I grew my hair out and it was fine. And then one day I actually came in and my hair was straight. Cause you know, it's versatile. I can do whatever I want, which That's I love right. <laughs> again, about natural hair. <laughs> it'll be a twist one day and then I'll have a weave another day and it'll be straight the next day. Cause that's just what I like to do. And so somebody actually came up to me and it was a friend of mine and said, Oh, wow. You look so professional today. <laughs> and I said, well, why do you think that? <laughs> Because I looked professional yesterday too. And I could see you saying, oh, I love your hair. You know, I get it. It's a change. People ask me questions about my hair all the time because it'll be like down my back one day and cut short the next. And so I get the questions and I'm okay with curiosity and asking those questions. But when you make assumptions of like, well, this hairstyle is more professional than this hairstyle, that's the type of microaggression. I don't think people realize you're impacting things a lot. Like you're impacting how someone is internalizing their natural essence, basically, you know, and their perception of themselves, right? Exactly. Yes. Like for you to say, well, my hair is very kinky. And if I just let it be, is that unprofessional? Or is that something that's been drilled into our society? What is professionalism really? Is it just being neat and clean? It's not a particular thing. So I think we need to unlearn that. It's not like, how white can I get? And I'm not trying to like point out but that's just the history of the country, you know? So it's like, how close to whiteness can I be to be? That's that's what professionalism is. No, that's not. It's not true. So that was what I personally experienced. And I just had to say, you know, I just speak up and say, because I felt comfortable with that person to educate them at that time. But, you know, we don't always feel comfortable and we kind of have to just get over that hump and be uncomfortable and kind of explain, because I don't think people really realize the impact of statements like that, just in referring to anyone's physical appearance and professionalism. The second thing, so my boyfriend decided to go to my dentist. He had quite a bit of work to get done. (laughs) And so they literally would not let him leave the dentist's office without paying his bill in full. And I thought that was so odd because he has health insurance and, you know, they cover a certain amount, but sometimes dental plans don't cover much as we all know. (laughs) Right. And so he had quite a hefty bill that he would, he probably, he could have paid it right there. But I think in terms of planning, we all have to plan. We all have other things going on. So that wasn't something that could be done. And so I just thought it was so odd that they wouldn't let him leave. So I came to help and then we left. And so it just bugged me so much 
And I actually became an inspector gadget and called around to other offices. And I said, do you offer payment plans when people can't pay their bill in full? Because I'm sure that's not an uncommon occurrence. I I think that happens pretty frequently where you don't have $3,000 just sitting to spend ka-ching. Some people have it like that, which is awesome. We're getting there, but we didn't have it. And so I asked and they said, oh yeah, of course, normally it'll be at this term or these terms and we offer it. And it was the same company. It was just a different office because I I was trying to be slick. And so I had to go back and say, hey, why is it that this is available to most people, but not available to my boyfriend? And we were in a, you know, we weren't in like a predominantly black neighborhood or anything. We were in a predominantly white neighborhood, which it's his first time going there. I don't know if it was because it was his first time, but my mind went erasing. And so I'm like, and that's the thing. When you have microaggressions, it's kind of like gaslighting a little bit because you're like, am I supposed to feel this way? Was yeah. this really like about my race or, or my gender or my identity in some way? Or maybe this person wasn't educated on the plan. So it's like a little bit of checking yourself that you're not like overdoing it. Cause you know, sometimes black people are accused of stop playing the victim. You always think it's your color and it's not. And it's sometimes hard to delineate or to make the decision of, okay, I need to address this in this manner or in this manner. And so, you know, things were resolved and those people are not there anymore. And I don't think it was just because of me. I think other things had happened as well, but it was just the weirdest thing. Cause I personally like coming from Jersey and New York is very, very diverse. And I'm sure microaggressions are there, but it's just a little, I've just never experienced that. And it was jarring. Like I literally, <laughs> I was flabbergasted. <laughs> I didn't know how to feel. So those are the two major things that I've experienced personally. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. I actually have one I want to share too. I, uh, it was uh, more of an, a work environment a uh, long, long time ago. And, and we had some visitors and I'm always a helper. I, I love technology and I love to help. So whenever there's visitors, I always try to uh, help out and make them feel welcome. And they were setting up and I was talking to the person in, by, by his first name and everybody else was, uh, the room was full of like 20 guys and, and the visitors. And I was talking to him in his first name and his right hand man came over and, and said to me, doctor. And I, I laughed because I thought he was joking, but uh, my mind went racing. It's like, what do you mean? Do you want me to call him by his title? And then he reiterated, yeah, a, a doctor XYZ. And I said, I was so mad, but it was one of those situations where it's like, do I let this go? Because you do get exhausted trying to correct all these things as, as they present themselves. And I was like, do I so let this go? he only said that to you, Erica? He only said that to me. And there were some young interns in the room, males, that uh, mm-hmm. were calling this person by his first name. And he was not correcting them. And uh, I was very upset. I was very angry. I was going to let it go. But then I, I, in my mind, I had this conversation in my mind saying, I have to speak up because I can't let this go. So I did. And I said, well, in a polite way, like you guys know me i said look that young intern over there just graduated college so as soon as he starts calling him doctor i'll do the same <laughs> and uh he, he kind of got upset at me but i was like hey he he reached out to me took the time to walk all across the room to let me let me know this situation i well i answered so that was one situation that stuck with me over over the years and um Gari was talking earlier about accents and I have family members that have thick accents as well. And, and it always bothers me how people don't have the patience to let thoughts through. So if my family members speak very eloquently, they just speak a little slower and it bothers me how they try to explain what they're trying to say. (laughs) 
the explaining over them. It's like, well, just let let them share their thought, their complete thought, and uh, you'll see that they can explain themselves. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I had a personal experience that I wanted to share with my son. He's seven and my son, who is a um, special needs child. I've been asked things like, what's wrong with him? I've been asked, would he play with normal kids? And that's been really fairly crushing because I've had to pretty much explain that there is no mistake here. There is no wrong here. There is no nothing here. There, There is a beautiful, happy child who is so glad to be in this world because he really did have to fight for life in his first one or two years. And every day I see it, that he is just so happy to be here, you know, just the happiest child you could meet. And so when people say things to me like, well, what's wrong with him? Or why isn't he normal? And people have said that to me. They don't understand what that does to a person. It really crushes you. It really takes a toll on you. So I initially did not respond because I just couldn't respond. It it was just too difficult. And it got to the point where I was proud of my son. I was proud of everything he'd accomplished. I was proud of his fight and his journey. And I thought, I am not going to let somebody come to me or come to my family members or most importantly, come to my children and question his rightness, his normalness. And I started speaking up. And this has been a huge teacher for me personally, because I was guilty of of some of these microaggressions. And now that I see it, and now that it happens to me fairly pervasively, I don't question what people look like. I don't question what people sound like. I don't question some of those sort of barriers we put up anymore. And it's really been through the hard knocks of learning through my son Because, you know, if somebody's happy and if they're healthy and if they're living out their life and their dreams, that's really all that matters. And and I don't say this in a contrived way. I say this through the last seven years of really learning about what it's like when you are different, when you look different, when you talk different, when you seem different, how people respond to that. And I just don't think those differences are important at all. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Gari. You know, you're right. I think we have to, we, meaning us us as a society, have to get to a point where we have to normalize things that people deem not normal, whatever that may be, sexual orientation, disabilities, hairstyles and textures and things of that nature. You know, we have to learn how to normalize those things because they are normal. You know, as a child growing up, I'm biracial and I was adopted by a black family. And as a child growing up, I know I looked different from a lot of my black friends, but I didn't know why. And, you know, they were so, and, you know, kids can be so mean. They were so mean, you know, they called me names and you do, you internalize it and you carry it with you. And, you know, sort of, I think a good transition to talk about, right? So how do we, you know, how how does this impact people from a health perspective, right? A mental health perspective. It can seem innocent and harmless, and it can be really devastating to people to carry this with them throughout their life. 
in preparing for this podcast, I was doing some research and I found an article that Pfizer put out and Dr. Joy Bradford was quoted in this article and she's a licensed psychologist. She's a speaker. She has a podcast on mental health and her podcast is around therapy for black girls. And she said that racism can result in a host of mental health concerns, including things like anxiety and symptoms of depression. And going back to, I think Lauren said this earlier, just that you you question your own perception when you experience microaggressions, whether it's for a moment in time or whether it's for your entire life. And it's been shown to lead to things like stress and diabetes and heart disease and all of those sorts of things. So as we close out, I do have one more question before I talk about some of the resources. Looking back, if you had to say to your younger self, here's some advice, what would you say? What advice would you give your younger self? I've thought about this before because I spent a lot of my younger life trying to visually represent the type of gay person I saw in the media, which was very few and far between. It still is. I think so many marginalized communities are underrepresented, you know, special needs, LGBTQ plus, everybody. But I think I would tell myself I I don't have to be any different than who I am to still be a part of the community that I am a part of. For so long, I felt I wasn't gay enough because I did want to wear makeup or I did want to wear high heels. And I saw gay women in looser jeans or flannel shirts, which is awesome. And it looks great on some people, not on me. Um, And I really tried so hard to rock these looks because I was like, I'm going to be gay and everyone's going to know it. And I just looked so silly because I was putting on this performance for other people that thought because of how I identified, I needed to look a certain way. So this, like for me, it all comes back down to representation and just a lack of representation for so many different types of people. Like you're not gay and you have to only look a certain way or act a certain way. There's so many different ways to be gay and to be proud. Um, Just as there's so many different ways to be, you know, a woman and to be feminine or not, or however you want to identify and feel comfortable. So for me to definitely tell my younger self, being exactly who you are as you are is enough in, in whatever avenue, you know, you find yourself in. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, you are enough as you are. Anyone else? What would you, what advice would you give your younger self about how to handle a microaggression? So (laughs) I would actually gather myself. (laughs) That's the word we like to use. (laughs) Let's gather yourself. Just because I know as a younger person, I was, I was pretty judgmental. I was definitely that person who probably microaggressed against even my own characters and traits, you know? So for example, like growing up, we would see, you know, pictures of Blackness or pictures of what a Black woman should be. And I just did not want to fit into the stereotype. And so in not wanting to be a stereotype, like for example, I had heard or I had seen that 
you know, everybody thinks that black people love fried chicken and, and watermelon, which everybody does because they're both delicious, not just black people. But right. I refuse to eat them at the office. I would refuse to eat them in front of people that weren't black. And it was like, why? And I was just like kind of putting pressure not only on myself, but trying to separate myself from my who I am in efforts to separate myself from what I thought society saw of the Black community or Black women. So no, I'm not going to go natural. My hair's going to be straight. I, I remember saying out of my mouth, <laughs> I don't go around here looking nappy-headed. This is how my hair grows. A black woman said that against yourself, against my own, against myself, because of because I was internalizing societal norms on what I should be trying to break a mold of I'm not lazy, so I'm gonna work twice as hard as everyone around me, knowing that I probably won't get recognition. Like just thinking, like that's kind of what you grow up learning is. Well, you have to work twice as hard as these other people because you're automatically seen as lazy and not smart. You have to show everyone how smart you are to the point where I think I'm so smart and I think I'm smarter than the next person. So I would gather myself and be like, one, embrace your identity. You are who you are. You can be who you want to be. The things that you see on television, the things that people are telling you, the things that you see happening in the streets does not define who you are. You define who you are. And if you're religious, God defines who you are. Look to that. And so I would tell myself, get off your high horse, honey, because you looking like that girl over there is not a bad thing. That's your sister or, you know, that's your brother. It's okay to embrace the parts of you. It's okay to embrace the history of you and your people. So I would get myself all the way together. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. (laughs) That's some serious self-reflection right there. Anyone else? Yeah, for me, going back, that was a great question. Uh, looking back, I would say, yeah, embrace your identity. It's your superpower. Because I was I was very comfortable in my own, I would say, differentness when I was younger. But like Sarah said, you were trying to fit that mold around you. So you would do things differently in public, but in private, you would be your own self. And you were very comfortable with that. I would tell my younger self, embrace it. Gain that confidence. Speak up find your allies, and then go through life in a younger uh, version of yourself through with that motto. Because I, I feel like I found my voice later in life and I was able to make a change and try to find allies later in life. I wish I would have done it younger and to tell myself, it's going to be okay. Because when you're younger, everything is the end of the world and it's the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And it just it's going to be okay. Just embrace your identity. It is your superpower. And you'll see. Do you want you can be whatever you want to be. Nobody's going to put you in a box because you're a woman. Uh, you have to do these things. Or because right. you're a woman, you cannot get this far. Or because you're a woman, you have to stay home and take care of the family. It's like you can be whatever you want to be. So it's just to somebody to have reiterate that to me when I was younger and just to be okay, your identity is your superpower. That's right. I love that, Erica. It's your superpower. As your younger self, you don't have the same level of courage, right? To stand up and to put a stake in the ground. So thank you for that. And Sean, just to add to that, I think what I would tell my younger self and, you know, I have a 10-year-old son whom I sort of think about him in some ways as my younger self, like Erica, I found my voice later in life, not when I was younger. 
a big part of my voice really came from, you know, in raising our younger son, our seven-year-old son. And I often do tell our older son, you're going to meet people who are going to look at you funny when you say you want to do things, when you talk about your dreams. My 10-year-old son wants to be a basketball player. That's his dream. And he'll come to me and he'll say, mom, people laugh at me. People tell me that they don't think it's ever going to happen. And I said, you know, you I can't tell you how many people told me that your brother would never walk. And it happened. And I just kept believing it would. He believed he would, like my seven-year-old son believed he would. And I said, people are going to do that to you. They're going to tell you no. Some might say it very directly and others may give you funny faces. They may tell you that they may laugh at you. And, and they do when he says that. And I said, you just keep going. You tell them to be quiet and you just keep going. You just keep going and taking each step towards your dream. And our younger son, you know, my dream for him was to walk. And each step he took was a realization of that dream. That was my dream. That, that may not be, our, you know, our younger son's dream, but that was my dream for him. And it happened. And it took a step. It took a fall. It took two steps. It took a fall. Five steps became 10 steps, became a fall, became 20. And now we're here, you know, walking over a mile. And I yeah. told my older son every day, take that step. Don't be afraid. They're going to tell you no. They're going to tell you it's not possible. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to make you feel like you're not capable. Ignore it and tell them to be quiet and then keep going. And, you know, raising a special needs child has had that kind of impact on our older son that maybe he can do it and not to give up. So I would tell my younger self that same bit of advice. That's a whole mic drop right there, Gari. It's over podcast is done. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. You know, it, it's great to hear that there's some inspiration happening in that situation, right? He absolutely can be a basketball player, just like your younger son could walk. So thank you for sharing that. So as we close out, let me just say thank you all for sharing your stories. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for having the courage to speak up. I want to just share, you know, how to move through microaggressions for those listeners that may say, you know, how do I address it or am I doing it? The one thing I would say is remember there's a difference between intent and impact, right? Your intent may be not to offend, but your impact is that you do offend. So before you speak, do a self-check. Pause before you ask someone a personal question. Pause before you compare someone to something or someone else. Pause before you make assumptions. Pause before you fill in the blank. And I think for people who have experienced microaggressions, I think one of the best ways to address it, repeat what you heard and say, I want to repeat what I think I heard you say. Did I hear you say? <laughs> and then address it. It will likely catch people off guard, and that's okay, because again, most people don't do this intentionally, and it's sort of a, a check in that fashion to say, that's not okay, you know, and you, you can do it in a manner where it doesn't have to be combative. And then in terms of some resources that are out there, in preparing for this, again, I found this Pfizer article 
There's a 2014 NIH study on microaggressions. I would encourage people to, to read. Harvard Business Review has tons of information out there about microaggressions, as well as the New York Times. So there's a lot of information out there. I think what people have to understand is it is everyone's responsibility to educate yourself and not look to someone else to educate you or to give you guidance. Take that accountability on and educate oneself. Again, I really appreciate all of you joining me in this discussion today. I appreciate you sharing your stories and continue with your superpower and continue to be the strong women and and break those societal norms and do your mic drop. So thank you ladies so much for, for sharing today. And I look forward to the next time we get together. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Speak Up by Avalon Bay podcast. We hope this has empowered you to speak up too. If you have comments you would like to share or topics that you would like to suggest, you can email us at speakuppodcast at avalonbay.com. Stay tuned for our next episode where the topic will be creating your own career path. All statements expressed on this podcast are those of the participants only and not of Avalon Bay communities. Avalon Bay and the Women's Leadership Network reserve all rights to this podcast and its contents. This podcast is copyrighted and may not be reused or rebroadcast without permission.